Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jezebel Garcia Pedroso, providing food and other necessities to the poor in Jesus' name. So a disaster strikes through our ministry partners on the ground. We're there. So they, they are already working through the emergency management agencies, working through the local government, through their community leaders to identify needs. And we're um, quickly, we can act within 24 hours. We're already out there uh, delivering aid and beginning to identify where do we now need to um, begin projects, access to water, access to education, access uh, to shelter and protection of lives as we go from relief to, to development. Isabel Garcia Pedroso, next. Food for the Poor serves people living with food insecurity in Latin America and the Caribbean. Interestingly, 80% live in disaster-prone and degraded areas. Jezebel Garcia-Pedroso is Director of Programs and Operations for Food for the Poor. She's with us to discuss some important considerations in responding to disasters. Jezebel, first introduce us to the Ministry of Food for the Poor. Well, this year we're celebrating our 40th anniversary, and it was founded February 12th, 1982, by our founder, Ferdinand, we call him uh, Ferdy, um, food, and the founding country is Jamaica. Hmm. And he started to notice just a lot of poverty uh, around him, and he really wanted to, I think to a certain point, he lived with the poor. He wanted to understand them. He wanted to provide additional dignity, all in the word of Christ. And so... We were, he started the organization. We've expanded now to 17 plus countries where we're continuing to add new countries. And it's really inspired by the gospel and motivated by our love for one another. And the mission is to end poverty um, in the countries we serve throughout the Caribbean and Latin America. And we really put Christ first in our work. And we are guided by the fundamental principle that all people have the right to achieve their full potential and live life in its fullness as promised by Jesus Christ. And we see that everything starts and ends with God. Um, it's really turning the church here in the United States, right, to the church um, in the developing countries. Um, and so we, we have programs all the way from relief to development, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those programs. But yeah, 40 years, so great work in those 40 years. And there are similar organizations out there. People sometimes think of World Vision, or Compassion International and others, how is Food for the Poor similar? In other words, how does it contrast with some of those other relief development humanitarian assistance organizations? So you have a lot of global organizations. You have some that have what I call a, a niche. Food for the Poor really con uh, centers in that LAC Caribbean, I call it LAC Latin America, the Caribbean region. And we try to target we work through ministry partners on the ground, through um, churches, through hospitals, through Christ-centered ministries, um, and we really try to come in into a community and begin to work not only in relief, but sustainable livelihoods through development. We want to get to know the communities. And what's interesting about Food for the Poor is we're really partnering with people who know their communities. So they, they know you know, where um, their demographics, they know the needs, and we want our response to be very localized to the needs of the community. 
Um, again, we work everything from relief to rehabilitation to development. So a disaster strikes through our ministry partners on the ground, we're there. So they, they are already working through the emergency management agencies, working through the local government, through their community leaders to identify needs. And we're um, quickly, we can act within 24 hours. We're already out there uh, delivering aid and beginning to identify where do we now need to um, begin projects, access to water, access to education, access uh, to shelter and protection of lives as we go from relief to, to development. Uh, under what circumstances do you go to one of these countries? In other words, what what triggers you're going to that country? And uh, I mean, do you have to get permission? I mean, there must be a certain amount of uh, protocol that you have to go through. So a lot of our ministries are um, have permits and they're registered with all the various ministries. And so we're making sure that before we bring a partner on board, we vet them fully. So we want to make sure that they can clear through customs. That's very important. We'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that on when we how we support. But we want to make sure if we're sending aid through that things can clear through customs and that they also have the right infrastructure and distribution network. So who are their sub partners? Who are they working with? So that for us is very important as we bring new partners on board um, and our support is to build their capacity. Uh, we're not there to say it's all food for the poor, right? It, nope, it's all of us in Christ. And I always go back to Romans 12 and um, and I'll say it here because I always, you know, when it comes to partnerships for Romans 12, four through six, for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Mm. You have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And that's what we look for. We look for what are those strengths and maybe where there are gaps, we help support and build those gaps so that we are continuing to strengthen their capacity. And when you talk about a partner, what are you referring to there? So ministry partners could be other NGOs within the country. Um, so they are registered NGOs within the country. They can operate. They can provide aid. They themselves will have subpartners. Those subpartners are going to be hospitals, schools, churches, other uh, community organizations. We also may work through other international um, infrastructure like Caritas. So Caritas Internacionales through Rome, through the Catholic Church. But we may also work through other denominational structures that are from an international standpoint, but they have national uh, presence. Well, my guest today on His People is Jezebel Garcia Pedroso. She is Director of Programs and Operations for Food for the Poor, and we're talking about helping communities both struck by disasters and suffering from food insecurity. Obviously, there are a lot of a lot of details about what you do, and you have to form relationships with local communities in these various countries, Jezebel, but can you give us an idea of what's meant by uh, food insecurity? Uh, we, we talk about that here in the U.S., but obviously... It, it has a bit of a different definition, I'm sure, in some of these other countries. Yeah, so our goal is to get communities to be food secure. So what does that mean? That doesn't mean just giving someone a food kit, right, that's going to last them a month. We want not only to give them access um, to markets that have uh, availability of food, but also not just um, rice and beans. We want a wealth of nutrition of food. Um, and we also want to give them consistent access and the buying power. So once you get to those phases, that's that last phase, having that buying power, having access to those open markets, not just with 
uh, carbohydrates, right, or not just to one source of protein, but we want to make sure that it's balanced. And once we get to that final stage, that means food secure. And so whenever we're lacking any of that, there are some food insecurity. Um, within Latin America and the, and, the, and the Caribbean, we have um, the food and I'll get here, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United uh, Nations recently published in 2020 um, a report that estimated that close to 60 million people in Latin America and the Caribbean are living in hunger conditions. So that means desperate conditions where you barely have access to even one meal um, per day. And so that's what it means when we're talking about, you know, food security here in the States or insecurity, you might have deserts, right? There's no supermarkets maybe nearby, but there is still access, but you just have to drive a little further mm -hmm. um, or you don't have access to some of those nutritious fresh vegetables and fruits. But overseas, you may not have access to any of that, right? Um, in Haiti, they depend on almost 50% of the food is imported. And so what happens when supply chains are affected, right? And so these are these much greater dynamics to food insecurity that we're discovering and, and we're, we're dealing with, right, and the challenges of that um, in the countries that we serve. And in uh, uh, your piece, Natural Disasters Drive Hunger, I think you wrote that 80% of those people that live, that 60 million that live in food insecure areas are also in disaster-prone areas. Yes. So the World Food Program has um, an infograph where they kind of depict, right, how disasters drive hunger. And there we see that they state, like you said, 80% of those 60 million people in Latin America and the Caribbean are living in disaster prone and de degraded areas. We're seeing that even more so now as climate is changing um, as climate, um, we're seeing stronger storms, right? Now it's it's not a cat five, it's almost a category six, right? Um, and they're becoming, um, they're changing even the patterns. We're seeing them much later um, in certain high hazards like hurricanes. We're seeing them clo way closer into November than years before. And so what happens when you have a family that's already starting off at a point of being very, very food insecure, when you bring in a disaster on top of that, maybe when we were beginning access to agriculture and programs in agriculture, once you get rid of that, now they're starting from zero. So it, it, it just compounds the situation once you have a disaster. So our goal is to really mitigate a lot of those risks. So we're looking at disasters, not just in times of relief, but how can we prepare these communities to evacuate in time? Things like agricultural climate insurance, right? So mm -hmm. if they lose crops, how can they regain that back? So we're, we're talking about disaster risk reduction and mitigation strategies that really help protect developmental gains. And, and how many, roughly, how many uh, staff does Food for the Poor have on the ground in these 17 countries? So we work through ministry partners. We do have three associate offices. One is in Jamaica, Food for the Poor Jamaica, in Haiti, Food for the Poor Haiti, and in Food for the Poor Guyana. And so in Jamaica, we have almost 200 employees. In Haiti, almost 400 employees. So our ministry is really Haitian-led ministry. Mm -hmm. um, and in Guyana, we have close to about 100 um, employees and food for the poor is located in in coconut creek florida and we have just over 300 employees mm, so that, that's a large organization can you yes. give, give us an example of, of 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 what it looks like from the point of a of a disaster for example haiti has suffered obviously tremendously well, the earthquake and other things earthquakes 
Yes. And, and with Haiti, it's a good thing that you're bringing that up. It's a, what we call a complex emergency and a complex crisis. Why you have this food insecurity, right, that we're talked about that has kind of uh, compounded um, ever since the 2010 uh, earthquake with a lot of aid coming in, right? And that's the other thing is now organizations and on our, what I call it, our, our NGO community is really taking a look at how do we now look at localization of aid and getting away from dependency of aid. And so we're learning a lot of lessons learned. We're growing from that. And so in Haiti, for example, we have our Food for the Poor Haiti office. They are constantly communicating with church organizations, with pastors, community leaders on the ground to access needs. We do have also different programs that we run. We have a canteen um, that unfortunately after COVID-19 had to close for obvious reasons, but we're hoping to kind of restart that. But when you have gang violence, fuel insecurity in Haiti, um, other security challenges, you really have to navigate that. And so we do that very carefully. We do that to keep um, the community as safely as possible. And so in Haiti, once we identify a specific hazard, we're already communicating with the pastors, the laypersons, the clergy community leaders. If it's a hospital right now with the cholera outbreak, that's been sort of this last um, uh, layer of, of challenges for Haiti. We're communicating with the cholera treatment centers, with our uh, health institutions to understand the needs. And we have a warehouse there that we've been sending aid to. They prepackage the aid. So if it's specific to hospitals, medicines, medical supplies, if it's specific to communities, we wanna make sure that we're targeting X number of families for about a month words of aid because we understand the challenges of coming to our warehouse. So we wanna make sure we give you enough, right? So you don't have to go through these challenges for another month. Um, and that's kind of how we operate. After the earthquake, um, we immediately established communication uh, with our in-country partner with Food for the Poor Haiti. And we're already on Zoom using just like this, as long as communication and network is up, we have round table, we're discussing what those needs are. And then we're activating here in the States, reaching out to our donors, communicating what the needs and the issues and the challenges are and how we're gonna go about that. So we're, we're beginning our operational response plan um, and we do that all in communication, always being led by the, by our in-country ministry partners. Well, I appreciate you saying that because a part of uh, one aspect of the piece that you wrote, Natural Disasters Drive Hunger, Six Ways to Help, it, it, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think of this, but you say, do no harm. As you're donating, as you're giving, you want to be aware of the local community and what are they already doing, What if, if you're providing something for free that somebody that they're manufacturing there and they're selling there that could actually harm the local economy harm local businesses how, how do you assess all of that i mean that's a lot to to keep track that's, of that is a, yeah that is a lot and we understand that in relief we have to think about sustainability and develop but we understand that we're also stopping the bleed right we mm -hmm. have to help we have to save lives that is the number one priority but as we're doing that we need to be mindful that it can't go on for a certain period of time, that there are certain products that the country um, does produce that we wanna be careful of. And what's beautiful about vetting organizations is that as you're speaking with customs, they know they have this insight into what the country's gonna allow to a, a certain degree, because maybe there's an exception because it's been declared a state of emergency, but they know this is gonna stop because we do have an industry that has to keep going and has to keep 
thriving. So our ability to have longstanding and trust trusted partners on the ground gives us insight to a lot of that. And I have to say, Bill, it wasn't until I came working for an NGO, you know, when when you hear of a disaster, you're going through your pantry, you're going through your closet, you want to help and it's a giving heart and we appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I started working for an NGO that I realized just the complexities of getting aid into a country clearing through customs, you know, um, and even in my own family, uh, I tell them, my mom's like, hey, so-and-so is collecting goods. And I go, but mom, you know, I got to tell you, I've been working in that country and they can't accept rice. Dominican Republic, for example, is a large producer of rice. So are they making sure they're not adding rice? And she goes, they're asking for everything. Everything's needed. And lo and behold, you'll have about a few months later and they're calling food for the poor. We can't get this into the country because they're asking for all of these details. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we always say um, cash does help us because we're able then to maybe purchase in country. So we're able to support the local economy, um, still getting what the community needs. Um, But what's great about working with ministry partners is that if they have great needs assessment on the ground, and we're able to communicate to our donors, this, these are the exact items that we need. They may change as the, the phases change of the disasters, and we're always communicating that to our donors. So that's what I always encourage is, you know, listeners, as your heart is a giving heart, because we're, we're all acting and, and being obedient, right, to that brother and sister that has that need, that take a look, you know, partner with, with organizations, so many amazing Christ-centered organizations that are out there here in the United States and international, go out, take a look at their website, see what it is that they're they're in need of, and, and help them out that way, because you know they vetted that, and they're going to get that to, to the right um, uh, country and community that needs it. Well, Jisabel Garcia-Pedroso is my guest. She's Director of Programs and Operations for Food for the Poor, and we're talking about helping communities that are well struck by disasters, that are suffering from food insecurity as a result, often, or in many cases. Well, Jisabel, obviously you have visited a certain number of these countries. Uh, t- tell us, give, give us an experience or two of, of where you've gone, what you've seen, uh, kind of be our, our eyes and our ears there for those of us that'll never have that opportunity. You know, I I have to say I visited Haiti and it was very quick. It was one of my first trips with Food for the Poor and it was a very quick turnaround trip. And we were going with donors. It was another um, NGO here in the States. And it was my first time I had been on mission trips to El Salvador and other countries in the past. But when I get off out of Haiti, it was just, um, I want to say just a few years after the 2010 earthquake, maybe about three years after the, the earthquake, and you can, there was a certain smell in the air that I hadn't smelled before as soon as I get out of the airport. And mm. I just, it was this air, not just, it was of, of, of need that I hadn't experienced in the past. It, it's everyone was the sense of, of desperation in a way, right? Near the, as soon as you get out into the airport and you could still see as we were driving through three years later, the rubble, you could see the tent cities and, and you you know, as coming from a developing country, you know, normally I'm here in Florida. So after a hurricane, our roads are patched up not too long, right? They're getting infrastructure going. But I, I thought, wow, this is three years later and you're seeing these mounds of rubble, these still USAID, you know, the tents with USAID or other organizations still living in these conditions. 
But I got to say, Bill, the more and more we went in, and we ventured out into the rural communities, we went into uh, this clinic called Help Inc. And it's this uh, doctor who was educated here in the States. He had of Haitian background, decided I need to give back to the community that my family was from. And he set up a clinic. And the day we went, they were doing vaccines. They were doing, you know, to, to the families. But they were also doing um, mother and infant um, uh, testing and making sure that their nutrition was good. They were also getting a bag of um, baby food and a bag of, of uh, nutritious food for the family. And I saw them all line up. Many of them have walked many hours with their child. And I just remember seeing the children, no matter the little bit that they had, the mother, but she knew that access to this health care is so important. The children were just dressed up in the nines, just as they were going to church, mm. the pigtails up. And I just remember this sense of gratitude, right, for this access to health care and access to this food that really struck me. But I saw more than anything in any other country I've been to, all of the challenges that Haiti has been through, the hope in those mothers' eyes. And it's something that I'll never forget. The children were just like any child and here in the States, running around the tree and playing hide and go seek. And I realized we are all the same, right? We are all that body of Christ, but they happen to be born in a different circumstance mm -hmm. than, than I was. But that really struck me. And of course, as you're driving around, you are continuing to see this hope. But you're also continuing to see the need, right? Um, the shack homes. Um, made really just of four sticks being held by an old tarp that probably an NGO had given maybe a long time ago, dirt floors, um, a lot of cooking being done inside the homes. And so we see a high rise of respiratory illnesses and conditions because of the smoke. Um, but you see a lot of that need. But what struck me the most is just that, that faith, that hope that they continue to have, in, even in the midst of not having, right, in that nothingness, they, they're still seeing that love um, and that hope that Christ gives all of us, even in the littlest of, of aid, right, in the littlest of that support. And those that are, are helping directly there, uh, the people in Haiti, as you just explained, or in any one of the other uh, countries, I think you said 17 Latin American countries, countries in the Caribbean, is are people with food for the poor, and I think typically people in America always wonder this in the U.S., are you able to communicate your Christ-centered mission? I mean, are you able to say why we do this? Is that is that something that, uh, that comes up? So a lot of our ministry partners are churches, are pastors. Locals. So locals yeah so they we know that when a disaster strikes or whenever there is need community where do they flock they flock to the church right they flock to their community and so not only that but these are the pastors that are going to be there long after we're gone so we're we're building their capacity to bring the material need and we definitely love we, we are a whole body that is mind, mm -hmm. body, and spirit. And we want to make sure, especially after disasters, post-traumatic and psychosocial, emotional, spiritual support is key to support the trauma that many, many in the countries we serve are, are you know, experiencing day in, day out. And who's there to provide that aid is the lay person, is the clergy, is the pastor, is that community of faith that is, you know, listening to them. 
Um, I was recently um, at a distribution after Hurricane Fiona in Puerto Rico. And I know Puerto Rico is like a balance, right, of international, but it's also domestic mm-hmm. part of the U.S. And we went to a community that hadn't been reached. And I went through the Episcopal Church. They did a distribution day. But you know what struck the people the most, Bill? Wasn't just that little help of aid and, you know, water. It was having the opportunity to sit down with one of the canons, one of the laypersons, to sit down with them and talk about what was troubling them. And, you know, seeing those tears of cleansing, right, Um, that hurt and that trauma and having that touch people the most out of everything. So we know still that the opportunity to bring people closer to that hope in Christ um, is key in all that we do. And, and, and all of our work is Christ-centered. Um, and anyone can support. Believer can receive aid, right? Believers or non-believers. But I think what's important about uh, working through these church ministries is that there is that opportunity to minister to them, to take care of, of their mind, of their spirit. And they do that so lovingly. Well, Jezebel, I know I have to let you go here in just a few minutes, but I'm wondering if you can tell us, you've kind of explained it already, but you're Director of Programs and Operations for Food for the Poor, what it is that that you do specifically, uh, and then how did the Lord uh, lead you into this ministry? In other words, what what was your background and how did you end up here? So I, it's Director of Programs and Operations, kind of vague, right? But I do a lot within operations. Part of it is Director of sort of leading our disaster response and preparation. Preparation for me is key. NOAA prepared, right? Even though there was no rain. Mm-hmm. So that's the goal is really yeah. to to um, prepare. Um, and so I lead an amazing team. Uh, it's four of us um, that really are, are attentive to all of our, our ministry partner needs and our in-country partner needs. Um, um, and we're focusing always constant communication is key in all of this and preparing them for response. Um, and how the Lord called me, well, I, I'm from originally I'm from Puerto Rico, but I moved to Ohio and grew up in Ohio. Mm. And um, I come from a corporate background. And I remember being at a young age, I was 15, I was watching a documentary, actually, and the Lord called me at that moment. And I made a promise that I would do something to sort of help the hurt of so many youth living um, in in poor communities that were resulting to maybe drugs or violence to right to escape their reality. And um, even though I went into sort of the, the corporate world, um, a blessing in disguise, I uh, get laid off after the 2008 stock market. I start looking, you know, it was it was this pulling in this call. And I eventually led to Food for the Poor. I've been here for 10 years, and it's just been a a true blessing. Well, if people would like more information about Food for the Poor, uh, Jezebel, how can they they get more information? How can they learn uh, more about your particular ministry? Yeah, so head over to foodforthepoor.org, and there or through any of our social media, Food for the Poor, it's all together, all words. Um, you can find more information about Food for the Poor, our various programs, how we work, and how you can get involved. And just kind of a, one more personal question. As you've traveled, you've been, you've been in Haiti, and you've been to other countries as well, right, that Food for the Poor serves? Yes, El Salvador, Nicaragua. How, how has it impacted you? I mean, what, 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 how has it changed you, maybe how you see life in the U.S., life overseas, whatever your impressions are? You know, you walk with more humility and gratitude 
every day. And one of the images that will never, ever leave my mind, I, we were stuck in traffic um, in Guatemala. And I see this, this uh, lady holding this huge basket on her head. It was sweltering hot. She was going up this hill. We were stuck in this hill. And I remember looking out the window and she was just walking up and down. And I see her lift her own shirt and wipe the sweat off her brow. And I remembered at that moment, and I said to myself, the day you have a rough day, remember this woman and that she is probably doing this to feed her family. And you don't have to go through those lengths to mm. do that. And so when you have a bad day, you think about her and you do the good that you do in solidarity with her. And so that's really, you know, those those impacting moments that really change you and, and, and have you kind of live your faith out um, through through gratefulness and obedience in God. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Jezebel Garcia-Pedroso, Director of Programs and Operations for Food for the Poor. Go to foodforthepoor.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Bruce Ashford on the legacy of Prison Fellowship founder Chuck Colson. And so his life is a model uh, for, for us. When he found himself in hell, he kept on walking. He didn't stop, start blame-shifting, resenting people, self-pitying. He, he grabbed under the Christian faith and he kept on walking. And as he walked uh, the path of his life, he was able to do some incredible things for the Lord. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.